We all want a business like Netflix or Amazon Prime. Businesses where once a customer engages with them, it becomes automatic and a part of their lifestyle from then on. But how do you build that forever transaction? I'm Robbie Kelman Baxter, and I have been studying subscription and membership models for nearly 20 years. In this podcast, my guests and I share the secrets and strategies of the membership economy. Join us for subscription stories, true tales from the trenches. We can learn a lot from subscription businesses that experiment with different revenue models and personalization. Organizations with too many offers risk overcomplicating things with competing goals. I'm talking about companies with multiple revenue streams, different promotions, pricing options, and tiers, or a combination of subscription, one-off transactions, and advertising. But increasingly, we're seeing examples of organizations incorporating multiple revenue streams successfully. For example, in news, fitness, streaming media, and e-commerce. Today's guest, Trevor Kaufman, is an expert on subscriptions, personalization, and digital experience. He is the CEO of Piano, a digital experience platform that helps organizations launch products and programs faster, strengthen customer relationships, and drive personalization at scale. Piano recently released their annual subscription performance benchmark report. It's full of valuable insights gleaned from their customers and relevant across many types of subscription model. In our conversation, we talk about the emerging best practices in subscription pricing, the role of freemium, and whether there's a place for ads in the world of subscriptions. Before we dive in, I wanted to note that we experienced some technical difficulties during this recording. So you'll likely hear a bit of a quality shift around the halfway point of the episode. Apologies for not catching this during the initial recording, but we're always working on improving our systems and processes. I'm still pleased with the conversation Trevor and I had and confident you'll enjoy the rest of the discussion all the same. Welcome to the show, Trevor. Thanks for having me. You recently released Piano's Subscription Performance Benchmark Report, which is fantastic. And I'm eager to get into the findings there. But before we do, maybe you can tell us a little bit about how you got into the, the subscription business, the media subscription business. Sure. I started a, a digital agency, which I sold to WPP in 2007. And working at WPP for several years, I saw the birth of programmatic advertising. And it became clear that the biggest problem that I think needed to be solved on the internet was the business model for content and for journalism. And so it was clear to me that with the advent of advertisers buying audience rather than buying adjacency, right? Uh, buying specific audiences over the web rather than doing as many direct deals as they had done in the past, that we were in a world where for premium publishers, CPMs were never going to pay on their own for the production of premium content. And so I started becoming fascinated in the paid content business and joined a small company that was doing this in New York City called Tiny Pass which we later renamed Piano. And that was the birth of it in, uh, in 2012. Interesting. So you really were one of the early people to sort of see this change from we're willing to pay for eyeballs to we're paying for engagement with a certain audience. That's exactly right. So whether the data is particularly accurate or not, there's the impression of advertisers now that they're able to target very specific 
audiences with specific purchase intent and content interest. And because of that and the explosion of ad tech and the domination of Google and Facebook, the advertising market has been very difficult for independent publishers. And so charging for access has been critical to their survival. So that's kind of where Piano has innovated. I've heard Piano described as a software company that helps organizations diversify revenue through personalization. What does that mean? What does personalization mean in this context? Yeah, so we're very focused on a concept we call personalized commerce. And the idea is that different people at different moments in time have different price points, interest, price elasticity, et cetera, at which they're, they're willing to, to buy, right? And so for us, our most successful publishers are the ones that personalize the most, right? That for individual audiences will come up with something quite relevant to them, an offer that's relevant to them, a bundle that's relevant to them, pricing that they'll accept at a moment when they can take advantage of it. So the, the more personalization we do, the more the numbers tend to go up. The more things we A-B test and try, the more niche we target audiences, you're a lot more likely to subscribe to something if we, for example, include imagery from stories you've read before, right? So there's all kinds of things that we can do to personalize that experience to make you more likely to convert by making it more relevant. And so personalization is everything from some cosmetic aspects of the offer. Of course, it's when we intercept you, right? Because a lot of our clients stop you from reading more free content at a certain point. So at what point we do that, the way we do that, whether that's dismissible or not, the, again, the price point, the bundle that we're offering you, all of that is is personalized in our platform. Really interesting thinking about how to personalize the experience before the moment of conversion, but also personalizing the offer itself. And I know we'll get to it, but also potentially personalizing what happens after that moment of conversion. Absolutely. And, and a big part of that personalization, Robbie, is content, right? So if you go to one of our client sites, very frequently they will use our algorithms to decide what stories you might you see on the homepage, right? The, the top stories will be chosen by the editors, but then everything below that is dictated by our content recommendations algorithms. Similarly, in the emails you receive, we might not send you an email, for example, that has stories you already read listed in it. So the presence and, and sequence of those articles in, a, in an email newsletter will be personalized. So all of these things help to drive the engagement and the loyalty that results in, in conversion. Can you give an example of how, at the top of the funnel, how this might play out with a real company? It can be a, a client of yours or, or a hypothetical. Sure. I mean, Dow Jones is a real world client of ours that uses this a lot. So if, you're, if you go to the Wall Street Journal or to MarketWatch, you'll see individual stories that are selected for you based on your likelihood to click on them. We develop these machine learning models, propensity scores, for every action that you might take, for your likelihood to return, your likelihood to register, and your likelihood to subscribe. And most of our clients will use those, seg those audience segments with different propensity scores to, so that they won't show you a subscription offer until it seems like you're likely to convert, right? And that maximizes their advertising revenue from showing more pages to people who wouldn't subscribe anyway, and their subscription revenue by intercepting the people who are likely to accept the offer. 
You noted in your research that there were some interesting learnings at the top of the of the subscription funnel in the moment of conversion. One of the things that I took away was this idea that the time it takes for conversion in an organization's first year of offering subscriptions is much shorter than that in the second year. So for example, if let's just say that Newspaper X had not historically offered online subscriptions and they, on January 1st of 2019, started offering it, that first year, the time to conversion would be shorter than in 2020. It's actually the reverse, I believe, Robbie. I think in your second year, the, the amount of time to convert compresses. Oh, what's going on there? Well, what's happening is a, is a couple of things. So first of all, you know, there is a, a myth that what happens when you launch a subscription offering is at first you, you're going to convert the most loyal users and then mm-hmm. you'll have sold to all of them. And then it's really quite difficult to acquire new subscribers after that. And of course that happens to some publishers, but for the most part, our clients get better and better at subscriber acquisition over time. Why is that? They understand their offering better. They put more behind the paywall. They hire more marketing people and they get better at it, right? They leverage more parts of our platform to do things like gift subscriptions or site licenses or, you know, all kinds of clever price promotions and two-year subscriptions, all kinds of different variations, things. We have a, a kind of frictionless purchase with Apple Pay in the browser where you don't have to register or choose a plan or anything. So, as they leverage more of those things and get better, they are able to convert more quickly. It's also true that the audience understands the rules a little bit better over time. So they know it's a subscription site, they know what the offering is, and they, the, the audience gets a bit smarter about it as well. And so the, the conversion comes a little faster in, in later years. So the myth of the low-hanging fruit is just that, it's a myth. Well, I think there is low-hanging fruit, but the question is, is is there a limit to it, right? So what we find pretty frequently is the loyal audience, quote-unquote, in month one might not be the the same people who are loyal audience in month 15, right? Because if you think about it from your own consumption patterns, there are probably websites that you go to a lot and then you sort of forget about them for some period of time. And then maybe six months later, you go back again and start developing a habit of going there again. That's pretty typical, right? So the idea that there is one loyal audience, which is this finite pool that when you've exhausted them, you're out of luck, isn't quite true. You're making new loyal audience members all the time, at least in publishing, right? So there's always a new group to fish from. You also talked about a concept of last touch attribution and first touch attribution. My experience has been that a lot of organizations don't track this at all, but that it could be something useful to consider. Can you talk about what you saw in terms of these two metrics and, and what their role might be in a, in a subscription business model? So I think the attribution model, we look at tons and tons of different factors, right? We look at time of day and what browser you're on and your geography and how deeply you scroll through articles. We look at all of these things to to try and get some indication of your propensity to subscribe. And, And one of the things we look at is this attribution model of when we first saw you, what article did you come in on? What link did you click to get to the site? And then we also look at what did you click on right before subscribing? What sort of pushed you over the edge? 
And of course, what you see in the first touch is very interesting because it really winds up defining a lot about who you are as a user with regards to the product. So for example, if you go to a website quite heavily and then you subscribe, you are much less likely to churn than someone who goes to the site relatively infrequently and then subscribes, no matter what the visit behavior was during the subscription term, right? And the, the reason is because, or at least this is what we suspect, it's the way you think about the product, right? At the moment you subscribed, you said, I am a heavy user of this thing. I use it all the time. And whether you do use it all the time, once you're actually a subscriber, is less material than how you thought about it at that moment of purchase, right? So first touch attribution is really useful for us to think about how the reader, how the user thinks about our product, right? Last touch attribution, we really think, okay, what are the things that people say, I must have this particular thing and drives the most conversion from a last touch perspective. So it's like two different flavors of the same thing, but they're, they're, both, they're both somewhat illustrative to say, how do people find us? And then what pushes them over the edge to buy us? So that, that how did they find us helps you know, A, good sources of future leads, but also B, what those people are expecting and what brought them there. And the last touch attribution tells you, because that's the last thing they do before they agree to pay. That's exactly right. right. So, so where did they go? What was it that they were trying to do that led to them paying? And I think it's really interesting, your point about usage, even before they subscribe, being an important indicator of satisfaction later and retention later. There's a lot of controversy, I think, about how much you should give away for free before you charge somebody for a content subscription. Yeah. What have you seen in terms of your data and your research, and also anecdotally, because I know you talk to a lot of different kinds of companies about the role of freemium and the role of free trial? And, mm -hmm. and when you, you know, I always say, you know, if you know what it tastes like, you don't get any more, but there's also something to be said about freemium as a way of driving new behaviors and building a habit that proves to them that it's worth paying for. Our clients... I think, don't necessarily think about it in the same way as some other industries do. So and what I mean by that is, I think when you were just describing a, a free trial and a freemium model, you were thinking about how do I expose the user to this product as effectively as I can, right? Mm -hmm. In media, of course, they're monetizing the free trial process because they're showing you advertising during the, mm -hmm. that period. Of course, it is a relatively small percentage of people who view more than one page on any given website in any given month, right? So you're really talking about this kind of smaller, more loyal part of the audience when you think about a paywall model. We almost universally, publishers will start with a looser model and then tighten it over time. So we've all kind of experienced the New York Times sort of phenomenon where you used to get 20 articles a month for free. And now, you know, you, I think you get one or two, <laughs> right? Um, and of course, the New York Times is a lot more uh, prosperous as a result. At first, we had all these clever rules that would drive paywalls where we said, okay, you get five per month, except if you've come from Facebook or whatever the rules would be. Then that migrated to this propensity model that we see much more frequently now, where we're 
intercepting people after a certain number of pages or when they're ready to subscribe, whichever comes first. And then lastly, now we actually know the impression level ad revenue that an individual user generates. So I can literally say, Robbie Baxter saw these pages. There were exactly this many ads from these advertisers on each page. Each one was worth exactly this much to tell your value. And that enables us to do really clever yield management between the advertising, you know, the free paid views and the advertising there and you being a subscriber. And we're using that now is our kind of next step is using that to decide when to sort of cut off somebody's free views. But for the most part, most of our clients feel like an article or two is enough for you to understand what the product offering is, right? Because you're seeing headlines, you're seeing little snippets of description, you're seeing photos. You probably don't need to read all that much to kind of understand what the Wall Street Journal is about or you know what, right. what's on BBC's website. Right. I like to tell the story. My sister used to work at a frozen yogurt store with her best friend. And people would come in for free samples all the time, as I'm sure you know, and they would say, ooh, I wonder, I'd like to try the vanilla, please. Right. And, you know, they were used to getting this big sample that was almost like their own, you know, ice cream cup. And my sister's friend, who's pretty sassy, would say to people, she's like, it tastes like vanilla. If you like vanilla, you'll like it. And I sort of feel like the New York Times is kind of like vanilla. Like if you like vanilla, you'll like the New York Times. We all know what it is. There's very few people who would say, what is this New York Times you speak of? But it's, I think what you're saying that's really fascinating to me and that I've been really trying to get my head around, honestly, is that it's not just you know your, your trial, your, your freemium. It's not just what does it taste like? It's not about what I always used to say, credibility and relevance. Is this good quality news? And is it the kind of news stories and perspectives that I value, right? That's why I need to read a couple of articles to say, yeah, this is the kind of stuff I want to read. And I do think it's good, or this is not what I want to read. It's not good. And then you're done. You've had your tiny taste of vanilla and you know what it is. But you're saying there are, I think if I'm getting this right, two other reasons to offer free on an ongoing basis in the world of, of publishing, in the world of media content. One of them is it might take some people longer before they form the habit and say, like you said earlier, yeah, I do actually read the New York Times every day. I do actually go there first. I do prefer their content. I should probably subscribe, right? So there's that behavior change. That's a, that's a good reason beyond credibility and relevance. And then there's another reason which you bring up, which is, and this has to do with also being able to track it and sort of your, your increasing sophistication at what is my value? So even if Robbie is not paying a monthly subscription fee, if she's looking at ads and ideally interacting with those ads, she's valuable. She's part of the product. So some people pay for our content and some people pay for our readers. And that is our blended business model. And I would love to get your thoughts. I mean, you come out of advertising, but you're you're very deep in kind of the, the world of the reader, the world of the content consumer, whether that's news or entertainment or gaming or streaming content. What's your thought about business models that, that blend those things? So in other words, free content that's being offered for more than just behavior change, but actually because of the ancillary revenue that's provided through the advertisements. Yeah, so there's also a thing that I should mention, which is 
the the uh, media websites have an enormous free trial platform in in the form of social media, right? They are receiving millions and millions of people clicking on social media links every day, whether those are, are organic or paid. And, you know, really many more of them are paid than one would expect because those publishers have premium advertising commitments to make where they have promised a certain amount of audience of a certain type. And if they haven't fulfilled that, they need to go buy those those eyeballs and bring them back to the site through social media. So there's this tremendous, you know, whether it's organic or paid way that people are consuming that media all over the world on those platforms at any given time. And so the, the job of a publisher is this very specific arbitrage exercise of fishing for people out in social media. I'm talking about the blended model for the sites who do it really well. I used to say there's no black market for copies of Vogue with all the ads ripped out, right? In a perfect world, the advertising is, is part of the value proposition of the reader. And there, there are some sites that have very relevant advertising on them. And then there are lots that have very irrelevant advertising or retargeting and things like that, that, that people get very annoyed by. But in a perfect world, you're seeing ads on that site that actually enrich the experience for you. And, and when that works, it's great. I think what's a shame in, in digital media is that with the rise of ad tech, the relationship between the publisher and the advertiser too often got disaggregated. And a lot of irrelevant advertising was appearing everywhere. And it's our hope that that continues to get reconnected and that there will be more direct deals and private marketplace deals and things like that in the future, particularly with the demise of the third-party cookie where the publisher's data about users is so critical and that the ads will start to be more relevant to the experience. Yeah. So it could be in a Pollyanna, Nirvana kind of world, it could be that this is a virtuous cycle, right? We learn more from the subscriptions, which we can then apply to more relevant ads, which leads to more engaged readers, which leads to more subscribers. I mean, that's, I think that's what we're, we're hoping for. And I, I, I have a couple more questions I want to ask you about your, your research report, but I also want to get to some more questions about what you see as sort of the future of the blended advertising subscription, subscription model. So first, I want to ask a couple questions about engagement. What have you seen about most engaged readers, least engaged readers, and what to do with them, particularly around this kind of best practice of let sleeping dogs lie? You know, if they're subscribing, even if they're not coming to the site, even if they're not spending any time with us, just let them be because it'll extend the duration of the relationship. What, what are your, what did, what did you see in the report relating to engagement? And what are your beliefs and your insights from having worked in this space at such a high level for such a long time? Well, sleepers are a lot more likely to churn, right? So we, we do a lot to try and re-engage folks. And that might be, again, in social media, right? So if you're a subscriber and I put articles in front of you that you, and you haven't been to the site in a long time, but I put some articles in front of you in, in the social media channels where you hang out and you start coming to the site again, you're a lot less likely to turn out. And so we, we, that making sure people are getting the newsletter, potentially getting browser push notifications that we're in all the channels where they spend time 
that those things really do help with re-engagement. I think we always try to do that rather than just kind of letting them sit there. Yeah, because I, I, I've had a lot of clients say, well, whenever we send out a reminder, we send out an email and say, hey, you know, paraphrasing, it's been a while since we've seen you. Did you notice we're offering a new course? Did you notice, you know, this great article on a topic that you've been interested in before, what have you, that there's always a percentage of people that get the email and cancel. Like, ah, thanks for reminding me. I forgot I was subscribing. Goodbye. <laughs> and so there's, there is, I think, this perceived trade-off, but it sounds like the data you see indicates that you're you're better off maintaining the relationship and trying to get your subscribers to get value for what they're paying for than to hope that they just they just don't cancel. Yeah, I think that's right. There are plenty of people who subscribe to something in order to give them the opportunity to go, even if they're not going, right? So insurance. I, I could go to the health club. I know it's there. I plan on going at some point. I'm going to keep my subscription going. But there, there are lots of other cases where you just you subscribe, then you say, ah, I don't really use this anymore. I want to save money and you cancel. The difference in the media business, of course, is we're providing value in the reminder. So we don't tend to say, hey, you should remember that you're subscribing to this. We tend to say, you know, we're just sending them articles they might be interested in. So for us, there's a little bit less, oh, yeah, that's right. I'm subscribing to this thing I don't like phenomenon and a lot more, yeah. you know, a lot more successful. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, it could like in the world of fitness, for example, if you are, you know, a member of Equinox, let's say of a gym and you haven't gone, they can say, we miss you. They can say, here's five exercises you can do in a hotel room if you're traveling a lot, or, Hey, do you know that we're offering new 5am classes, but it is different than being able to actually give somebody a taste of the actual product than exactly. just an enticement back. But it is such a tricky question. How do you how do you drive engagement? So we talked a little bit about who's likely to churn. You mentioned the sleepers are, are most likely to churn. You've talked about sort of some of the key moments in the report where people are most likely to churn, where people are most likely to cancel their subscription. Mm-hmm. What do you see there and and what advice do you have for subscription practitioners in terms of how to manage churn? Well, first of all, as I was saying before, we we see subscription, successful subscription management as not a set it and forget it tactic, right? The more we personalize, the more that we do to provide value and service the subscriber, the less churn we're going to have. And so we have a lot of tools we can leverage, again, emails, notifications, personalized content that we can can leverage to continue to provide onboarding, special promotions, gifting things that we can use to provide value to the user. And that process of continuing to identify value to deliver to the subscriber base and changing that over time so that we're staying fresh, you know, as a constant endeavor, but those are the things that we suggest because I think we're all pretty rational humans. And to the extent we believe that the company we're in a relationship with, and it's really, you know, subscription is a transactional relationship. If the other part of the equation is providing us a lot of value, then we're more, much more likely to keep up our ends, right? And so how we let people know about upcoming events that we're doing and all of that makes a tremendous, you know, building um, anticipation for the future 
makes you just much more likely to stick around than if we've just put up something and stayed quiet. So that's what I would say is to the extent we are always trying to identify subsegments of our population and figure out what we can do to serve them, that's always going to keep turn lower than a kind of one size fits all strategy or just not being active on their behalf. One of the things I've noticed with a lot of companies is that they focus all of their churn energy on the days leading up to renewal, like 15 days out, 30 days out, whatever, if it's an annual subscription, 90 days out. What are your thoughts about that as being the time for managing churn? Well, of course, (laughs) you know, you want to continually be providing value to everybody, but I don't think a kind of cohort analysis and looking at people who are coming up for renewal and making sure you're servicing them is a bad idea because, you know, a lot of us cancel when we see that charge on the credit card statement and are reminded and think, "Mm, I don't want that to happen again. I'm going to go cancel. So fortifying around that moment when that bill comes, I think is, it, it is very important. And we do tell people, you know, as much as a continual relationship is important, if there is any time to focus on it, it is in those days leading up to, to the renewal. We, we tend to see, and this is in the report, but we tend to see, of course, a lot of folks churn out kind of right away. You know, yeah. they, they subscribe in order to have access to an article or two that they were interested in or to see it on a particular train ride or whatever it is. And then once, but once we have somebody for, I think it's three years, that then the, the chance of them churning goes way down, right? So, you know, the, the longer they stick around, the more chance that they're going to stick around even longer, right? So really important to just keep providing value and keep being top of mind for those users. Yeah. So that it's that onboarding period, that early period that is almost the trickiest, right? Is to, to figure out who they are, to personalize the experience, to help them find the value that they came for. Um, and potentially, I mean, you brought up this, this, you know, like what I think of sort of the binger, the one who's like, I just want to watch this one series and then I'm out of here. Or, you know, I'm just interested in this one story and they're doing great coverage, but then I'm done. You know, the challenge of either filtering them out in some way, which is very hard to do, or figuring out how to get somebody who, you know, came for the Hamilton recording to stay for the princess movies, right? How do you how do you convert somebody like, you know, for, for Disney plus through that experience, if you know that they came for Hamilton and they have no intention to stay in those first few days, figuring out a way to get them engaged is going to be, is going to be valuable. Absolutely. Right. The first 24 hours are the most important. There's no question. And and yeah. so you know, that onboarding and reinforcing the value of their purchase, right. is absolutely critical. Yeah. Reinforcing the value of their purchase and those first 24 hours, you might have seen this that recently the activist investor value act capital took a 6.7 percent stake in the new york times and said they're going to push for more subscriber only content and the share price rose on that news the content a lot of the subscription content is is stuff like uh the crossword puzzle recipes and now you know with the acquisition of the athletic you know sports how do you feel about this focus on softer content as, as a means of driving subscription revenue? Well, I think it's incredibly powerful. I think it's really differentiated. Meredith Levine is one of the smartest people in, in our business. And the idea that some outside investors are going to know better than she will how to run the New York Times is not necessarily something I believe. 
and also I think she's been very aggressive in adding new uh, subscription content already. I think what has surprised everyone is the success of, as you say, softer content and the value of that compared to hard news. And news has always been a bundle, right? Your newspaper was always this mix of all of these different types of content and also a giant marketplace where you can find out what movies were playing and you know shows were playing and restaurants were opening and I used to work at the New York Times myself and I sold a section called Small Inns and Lodges that was how these little listings of how people would find Caribbean villas or fall foliage bed and breakfasts to go stay in, right? And, and, you know, the New York Times is a very specific section for schools for kids with learning disabilities, right? The role of that advertising is, is very important, but it's always been this big mix. And so what, what I think Meredith is doing, which is really interesting, is re-aggregating. That, and this is Meredith right? Levine, the, she's the CEO of, of yes, New York CEO Times. CEO of the New York Times, so, yeah, thank you. And so, you know, now all of a sudden we have a very different form of bundle that is product advice from wire cutter, right? Yeah. That is cooking and recipes, that is crossword puzzles. And, you know, they, they have some smart bundles by which you can offer that. But I think, you know, the more we can put on the benefit side of the seesaw, right? That just as Amazon Prime does, or, or lots of people do say, what more can we put here to provide value? That, that's a great strategy. So we, we love it when our clients add lots of ancillary benefits beyond what would be considered to be the most obvious thing. Yeah, it, that, it's such a good point. It's this, you start with whatever you have, the best that you've got. And then as you get to know your customers better, you layer in ancillary value to deepen the relationship, deepen the value, deepen the engagement. And I think that's especially important in the world of, of subscriptions, right? Because you want to keep them forever. Yeah. So one thing that we've seen, for example, very few will subscribe to a ad-free model, right? They won't say, well, if this is free, right. you know, I'll get it for free with ads or pay yeah. and not have ads, right? That People tried to, it. Yeah. Not, not to be <laughs> Right. But it's very compelling as an additional benefit and can get people to graduate to a higher level of subscription, right, than they would otherwise. So there's a lot that you can play with when you're doing it, but there are publishers who have an ad-free tier can charge more for that ad-free tier than they would have made from that user with advertising. Yeah. So, so it's, it's just a segmentation tactic. Yeah. So what I love that you're saying, and I hope people are taking away from this, is the importance of continuous tinkering, experimentation, layering things in, putting it in different places, being curious and not having a, you know, what I see sometimes, which is a big sprint to develop a subscription. And then they they finish it, they get it launched and they're like, okay, jazz hands, ta-da, we're done. Here yeah. it is. Enjoy. Instead of saying, okay, this is V1 and we're going to keep changing it every day, right? We're going to make it a little better, a little better. That's, that's, um, that's really right. And that's what, I mean, really been our emphasis as a company is about that active management of the subscription, yes. subscription relationship and of the subscription offer, because that's the way just through that, as you said, tinkering is, you know, how you get these incremental gains. We're always saying subscription is a game of inches, right? It is all of these little tactics and optimizations and segmentation tactics that wind up adding subscription over, over subscription. And, and really, you know, so many people will launch a subscription model 
And if it's not successful in the first day, they sort of give up and get frustrated <laughs> when, you know, it really just takes a lot of iteration. Yeah, exactly. Subscription is a game of inches. I love that. And, and also this reminder that when you launch your subscription, if it doesn't work, you don't say our company doesn't lend itself to subscriptions. It's we did not get the right combination of features and benefits and target audience and pricing and all of those things. We didn't crack the code. We need to listen more carefully. That, that's right. You know, nobody's first year is tremendous, right? But it's like <laughs> compound interest. You know, you're yeah. you're growing the subscriber base month on month. That is this wonderful annuity. So when it when it works, it's it's uh, it's just fantastic. I, I could talk to you all day, honestly. There's there's so much more to cover, but since we have to close, I, w- I want to close with a <laughs> speed round. Do you have a minute for a fun little speed round? How could I say no to that? <laughs> okay, first subscription you ever had? Uh, Wired Magazine. Your most useful subscription that you have today? Uh, New York Times Cooking. No, I'd say Chef Steps. Cooking. What, what is that, Chef Steps? Uh, it's this absolutely unbelievable site that got launched, and these guys make a sous vide cooker, and they sold, they sold the company to Breville not too long ago. But it is a, um, a really great sort of avant-garde cooking uh, website. Cool. Cool. I never heard of it. I'll have to check it out. The most underutilized but valuable subscription metric? I would say probably visit frequency. Visit frequency. How many times do they come back? Or, or I would say for our clients, breadth of source. So when we see somebody come back directly by email and via social media, that's an, a real indicator of loyalty that tends to be very predictive. Okay, so where are the source of their different visits are? If, they have multiple if, visit sources? Exactly. If we can get in front of a user in a lot of places and have them click on us, then we've got them. Awesome. And then finally, I know you come from the creative world of advertising. What's the best ad you've seen this year? Oh, Robbie, uh, I... I can't even think of any ads I've seen. I've watched, I, I have so much pace. So <laughs> I'm not, uh, I mostly see outdoor ads rather than have a lot in my uh, media sources. I think I just saw an ad for a chili crisp. I can't remember the name of it, but I thought it was really brilliant. I'll have to look it up and let you know. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Well, it's probably a good sign that you're not watching a lot of ads because you're paying for for subscriptions um, to get the quality content. I'm a believer in the product. I I pay for a lot of subscriptions. Right. You come (laughs) by it honestly. Um, I love it. Um, Thank you so much for for being a guest on Subscription Stories. It was a real pleasure to have you. Me too, Robbie. I had a lot of fun. Thank you so much for having me. That was Trevor Kaufman, CEO of Piano. For more about Trevor and Piano, go to piano.io. And for more about subscription stories, as well as a transcript of my conversation with Trevor, go to robbiekelmanbaxter.com slash podcast. Also, if you like what you heard, please go over to Apple Podcasts or Apple iTunes and leave a review. Mention Trevor and this episode if you especially enjoyed it. Reviews are how listeners find our podcast, and we appreciate everyone. Thanks for your support. And thanks for listening to Subscription Stories.